0: Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Before we take some time uh, to hear the word, um, if I could just lead us in a brief prayer uh, for the Philippines. I know that the country is just in devastation, and I know that some of you probably have a tremendous heart for overseas efforts, um, but um, that's something that we've been thinking about as to how we could get involved in helping in the relief effort as well there. The, the, the country is just in such um, shambles after what's happened. So if you could just join me in prayer briefly before we go into the word. Bear with me. Thank you. Father, we, uh, we come to you. A lot of times we are so sheltered here in this country. We're blessed, and we take so many things for granted. Um, we had a taste just a year ago of, at least on the East Coast, of what it was like to experience devastation in our towns. And Lord, yet you spared us. You spared us, and you were so gracious to us. Uh, Father, there is a country thousands of miles away from us, with people who are dying and the death count continues. And, Father, we, they are a poorer country. And, Father, they have uh, so little. Um, Lord, um, it is is—it is a, is a wonder. Um, and we trust in faith that you work for the, for the good of all things, but these are disastrous things. And, Father, we... When we experience things like this, it just shows us how our lives are so not in our hands. Lord, we lift up the people of the Philippines. We lift up those who are mourning their losses, the loss of loved ones, the loss of just whole towns and and not only families but property and material possessions. And Father, in a country that lacks so much, Father, so much has been stripped away. So much more has been stripped away. Father, we pray that, Lord, that you would uh, be present there. And, Father, in the morning, we know that you are present in the morning. If anyone understands loss, if anyone understands the loss of just the devastation of being separated from loved ones, Father, it's you. Father, will you demonstrate your compassion through your church. And, Father, I pray that for the many who have already begun participating in relief efforts today, Lord, that you would continue to empower them. Lord, that the provision and the generosity of this country would really show itself in times of crisis like this. Father, we've been haggling in this country over uh, universal health care and down systems, and Lord, these really are first world problems. Father, there are so many people right now who have nothing, and Lord, have even more has been taken from them. Father, in our compassion, will you enliven our compassion? And our hope, mix those two, marry those two things together in Christ, that we will be able to give and participate in some way, shape, or form. And Father, open our hearts and our eyes to even new ways of serving in this, in this capacity. Lord, build our compassion, grow our, our love and our faith, Lord, um, in your church and what, and what it's doing right now, what she is doing right now to, to serve the people of the Philippines. But Father, I pray that you will provide for them. Um, through anyone, through, through the generosity of people around the world, Lord, will you provide for this country. We pray these things in your son's name, amen. Thank you. Um, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27, you know, nearly everyone says that Jesus is a great teacher. But when you actually study his teachings, there are lots of hard sayings, lots of hard sayings, Hard to understand in one hand, but really what what we mean by these hard sayings is that they're hard to accept, they're hard to resolve, they're hard to receive, to take in. If you're new here, if you're new to Metro Presbyterian Church, we've taken a series of these hard sayings, put them together into one sermon series, and, you know, what what does it really mean? On the surface, these sayings, they sound terrible. At least a lot of them sound terrible. Um, And they pose problems for us. We struggle with these sayings, but as you get down deeper, we realize that these sayings Um, pose a lot more solutions than problems. For instance, if you take this phrase here, the big phrase here is what? Hate your father and mother. Uh, Some people say, man, that's really terrible for Jesus to say that. How can he say that? There are other people here who say, well, then I'm obeying because I already hate my mother and father, um, and it poses problems for some of us. But I tell you, for both these cases, whether you hate your parents, whether you think it's terrible to hate your parents, it poses solutions for us. Jesus is really saying here that to hate your parents, or if you hate your parents, the only solution for your hate is to hate them my way. Because my way is the only way that's really going to heal you. We're going to take a look at this passage. We're going to, it's only a few verses. Essentially not about fathers and mothers, wives and children. Sisters, brothers, brothers and sisters, it's not about your siblings. It's really about discipleship. That's what this passage is about. Following Jesus, what it really means to follow Jesus, and it means, at least today, it means three things. Um, Discipleship is unconditional, it's personal, and it's sacrificial. It's unconditional, it's personal, and it's sacrificial. First, we're gonna go into unconditional. Discipleship is unconditional. Almost everyone here, thinks that there's two types of Christians. At least we're led to believe that there's two types of Christians. There's the normal level of a, Christi- a, a Christian, but then there's these devoted types, these extra devoted types. In this passage, there's a large, cro- large crowd, verse 25, large crowd following Jesus. And Jesus turns to the crowd. And mainly what he's saying is this. There are no standards. There are no levels. He says, verse 25, uh, t- 27, anyone who wants to follow me has to do what? You need to take up your cross you take up your own cross. In other words, what he's really saying is, I have to be number one in your life. Jesus is talking about full, complete, sacrificial discipleship. There's no standards here. There's no levels of faith or Christianity here. Full discipleship is absolutely required of anyone who wants to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. Jesus is turning to the crowd and he tells them the true meaning, the true cost of discipleship. Remember, he doesn't turn to the crowd and he says, hey, it's free, it's free, my love is free. And then he turns to people who are really his disciples and he says, you need to take up your cross. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying to be a disciple, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. That's what he's saying. It's scary. At least it sounds scary. But it paints an amazing picture of what it means to follow unconditionally. The word unconditional surrender. He says, you need to hate your father and your mother. You need to hate your spouse and your children. You need to hate your your brothers and sisters. Remember, this is a remarkable statement. In those days, it probably knocked people, just completely shocked them. Why? Because the family life, the family structure in Jesus' day, this is how it went. Everyone's life, whether you follow Jesus or not, revolved around your own family and your extended family. Every decision was determined as a community, as a family unit. In in, in non-Western culture, family life was vastly more important. It is vastly more important even today. Determined everything in their lives. Jesus is looking at our normal agenda, the normal agenda of a person's life, and he's saying, you have to be willing to take your normal agenda, your agenda in life, and you have to kiss it all goodbye. You have to be willing to do that. He said, don't you dare come to me with an outline of how life should be. Don't you dare come to me with, with how you want life to be and then try to fit me in. I don't. I will not be used. That's Jesus. Don't you dare come to me with because you want to be a better husband or because you want to be a better wife or you want to have a happier family or because you want a more fulfilled life. You have to come to me for me. I want you to come to me for me. Don't come to me as a means to an end. I want you to come to me as the end. That's what he's saying. Not because I'm relevant, not because I'm fulfilling or I'm thrilling, I'm exciting. Not because you want to be a better citizen, not because you want to have a better society. I want you to come to me for me. That's what he says. I will be the most relevant, most thrilling, most fulfilling, but not if you come to me as a means. That's what he's saying. Come to me because I'm true, not because I'm relevant. Come to me because I'm a burning, consuming fire, not just because you want to thrill. Come to me because I'm holy not because you just want to be a better person, not because you just want a better society. So Jesus is really saying, don't come to me with your father and mother. Don't come to me with them. You have to string them along, and you can't come to me without them. Don't try to negotiate with me. Don't try to handle me. Remember C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Little girl goes uh, to Mr. Beaver and says, uh, you know, is, is Aslan the lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus says, don't fit me into your life. Don't you dare make me the means and your life the end. Your life is the means. I am the end. Come to me without negotiations, without condition. Now, let me ask you this. If you look at your life, is it stale? Spiritually speaking, is it stale? You know, you pray, you go to church, you you turn to God for strength. It's kind of like a routine. Jesus is saying, you need to throw away your agenda, you need to throw away your scripts when you meet with me. I need you to come with fear and trembling on one hand. He's like a lion. He's like, you know, of course he's not safe, but I want you to come gladly because he's good. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Of course he's not tame, but he's good. Throw away that mechanical uh, manner, that mechanical lifestyle of coming to him. You gotta come without condition. Now, that's the first point. Unconditionally, you gotta come to him unconditionally. That's what discipleship is. Now, second point is it's personal. Coming to Jesus, Jesus, it has to move you. And how, how do you understand that? Well, we're gonna go into the word hate here. He, Jesus is obviously not saying... I want you to be actively hostile to your father and your mother. I want you to to be actively hostile to your spouse. Some of you are already good at that. I want you to be actively hostile to your spouse or your children. I want you to be actively hostile to your brother and sister. That's not what he's saying. You know why you know that? Because, Because Jesus says, I want you to love even your enemies. So he's clearly not saying that. What he's meaning here in ancient Semitic language, hate, the word hate, in the Hebrew, had two meanings. The first is to hate actively, to to hate someone actively. But it could also mean to hate somebody comparatively, compared to another person. What do I mean by that? If you look at Genesis chapter 29, there's an incredible narrative of one of the great figures in the Old Testament. His name's Jacob. And Jacob had two wives. Jacob had two wives. One was Leah, she was first. And then she had, he had Rachel. He married Rachel. And, and the text, if you read in your interpretation, your translation of, of this text, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more. That's what it says in your translations. But the actual text, if you look at it in the Hebrew, the Bible actually says that Jacob loved Rachel but hated Leah. But hated Leah. Now, it doesn't mean or it didn't mean that Jacob actively hated Leah. Leah was his wife. Leah was his wife. He he was called to her. He married her. But just like in the translation, he loved Rachel so much that comparatively, he hated Leah. He loved Rachel so much that comparatively, his attitude to Leah was like hate in comparison. Jacob loved Rachel so much, it says, that he had to work seven years to earn her hand in marriage. And it said that those seven years were like a day to him. Ah. Jacob's love for Rachel was so, it was so great that comparatively, nothing else mattered. Everything else was like hate compared to his love for Rachel. That's what it means. And, um, you know, in in other words, Rachel was like his true north. Rachel guided him. His love for Rachel moved him His love for Rachel directed him. His love for Rachel comforted him when he was struggling. And that's what it means to worship. That's what worship is. Anything that you love comparatively comparatively above other things, that is the thing that you worship. That's the thing where you would say, you know, I would be willing to die for this thing. Losing this thing, it would render me lost. If I lose this thing in my life, you can count me as lost. That's what it means to worship. Jesus, you know, in saying this, mainly was supporting the first and second commandments in the Old Testament. Mainly what he's saying, what is it? Have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And you will not make for yourself an idol and bow down and worship these idols. I have to be number one. It's the first and second commandments. This comparative love, it doesn't mean we actually hate money it doesn't mean that we actually hate our spouses or our families. It doesn't mean that we hate and disregard completely our careers. It doesn't mean that we hate our friends or our siblings or our parents. But it means that when you, if by chance you lose your job, if by chance you lose your title, your position, you would still have yourself. You would not be rendered lost without these things you would still have yourself. You know the word integrity? That's what it means to have integrity. You know what integrity is? It means that your life is integrated. Taking things away from your life, you're still whole. You're still complete. There's an integration in your life that's driven by something else, a greater love. What's the opposite of integrity? Disintegrity. Disintegration. Your life is falling apart when you've lost these things. That's what it means. Now, Jesus... It's basically, if you look at this, it's a very, very searching text. Very, sorry, very, very searching test. What is he saying? What he's saying is, I want you to love me. I want you to love me so much. I want you to be moved by me. And look at the kinds of love here. Why does he say, hate your father and mother, your spouse and your children, your siblings? Why does he say it like that? Look at the kinds of love that are represented there. Your father and mother, that's familial love. your spouse. That's sexual, sensual, erotic love. Look at your children. You know, it's a paternal type of love, your brother and sister. That's like friendship. He says, I want and I offer you a love that is so great that, it pa- that all other loves in your life are mere pointers to the love that I can show you and that I want you to demonstrate for me. All the other loves, familial, paternal, erotic, all these other types of love, friendship love, these things will pale in comparison. It will be like hate compared to my love that I offer you and the love that I want you to have for me. That's what he's saying. By comparison, I don't want, I don't want to just inspire you. That's not what I'm here for. I don't want you to just feel good when you leave. I want a love and I offer a love that's so real, it pales in comparison to all the other loves in your life. I want to be your Rachel. I want to be your Rachel. I want, to, I want you to love me in a way that all the other things are like Leia, compared to me. You get that? Now, he's certainly not saying that discipleship is not about duty, that it's not about effort, that it's not about will or volition or obedience in spite of your feelings. Right? That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying you're not a disciple basically unless you're moved by me. I understand you you want to obey me. I want you to be moved by me. I want your obedience to be driven by being moved by my love. I am the greatest love story ever told. Why does the author here? Why does Jesus say hate? Why does he use the word hate? I mean, if he really just wanted to, mainly what he was saying was what? Put me first. Why didn't he just say that? I want you to put me above your parents. I want you to put me above your spouse and your children. I want you to put me above your siblings. Why does he use the word hate? He could have just said that. I mean, he says, you know, put me first in other places. And it's because of this. Jesus isn't just talking about priority here. He's talking about delight. He's talking about um, embrace, He's talking about, you know, uh, you know, the Psalm in Psalm 73 we read in your call to worship. He says, I want to be your portion forever. He wants you to delight in him. The things that you love, the things that you worship, when you have it, what do you, you delight in it. That's how you know. That's how you know the difference between an idol and true worship. That's how you know. Jesus is saying, I offer and want you in a way that makes all other loves, not priorities, he says, all other loves pale. That's what he's saying. In, your, in the word of encouragement that we read today, the Apostle Paul. In the book of Romans, chapter 5 says that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And he says this hope doesn't put us to shame. In other words, it doesn't disappoint us in, your, in other translations. Why? He says it's because of God's love poured into our hearts. In other words, then, then the question that we have to ask, you know, if you think about your prayer life, how's your prayer life? How's, how's life in church for you? You know, the Better better yet, better question, what's the engine that drives your prayer life, your devotion? What's the engine that drives these things? Is it just mechanical? Because that's gonna be so stale. You're gonna disintegrate. That means when, you, when we have a mechanical life, mainly what we're saying is that you are just doing these things out of obedience, but you're not moved by the love of God for you every day. And when you do that, there's a dissociation between your real loves, your functional loves in your life. So that what happens is God and your love for him and his love for you gets pushed aside you know, when you're pursuing these other things. That's idolatry, really, in a nutshell. That's what it is. What's the engine of your life that fuels your love, that fuels your devotion? Anything other than God himself, what the Bible promises is, will lead you to disintegration. Now, I know, some of you know that you disappointed your parents. Some of you know that. It's like a, this cloud. It's hanging over your head all the time, and you either experience shame once in a while or fear, but you, nevertheless, you can't be free. You, don't, you just feel so enslaved. There's a sense of failure looming in your life all the time. Or maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your spouse or a good friend, somebody who you feel like has rejected you, and it happens often in your life, and you're, you're, you're burned by that. You're hurt by that. Or maybe you're scared because you want this job. Or well, you want this promotion. You so desperately need it in your life to somehow prove that, that you're worthy in some way, shape, or form. And as a result, you're petrified. And you're not sure if you're gonna get it. And, and that fear of not having it has you by the throat and it's choking you. You know, money or career or being married by a certain age, you know, or your children. And having these things, when you have it, it makes you happy, but when you don't have it, it makes you sad. But it always makes you anxious. You're never at rest. You see that? You see that? You're you're not whole. You're being unintegrated. You're falling apart. That's disintegration. Now, there are several solutions to this. Human beings have come up with several ways of dealing and handling this. One, we can actively try to hate those things, you know. You know, you want these things, so you, you actively try to hate them, or you actively try to be indifferent towards them. One way or another, we want freedom. We want poise when when we sense these things looming in our lives. And it's either by trying to not love our parents or someone else or that career or money. You know, we either try with our will, kill that part of our heart. But you think about it, what, what a cost. Think about the cost of that. It's gonna leave you hardened and embittered. It changes you. If you actively try to hate these things that you love so desperately because it's so wrenched into your soul and you need it for a sense of worth in your life, oh, it's gonna leave you embittered when you just actively try to hate it. That's a cost. Jesus here says the only way to overcome these things, you know, it sounds so trite, is to love God more. That's the only thing that's gonna make a coward turn into a person with courage. That's the only thing that's going to make an inferior person, a, f- a person who feels inferior, into a confident person. And that's the only thing that's going to make a very proud and arrogant person and turn that person into a humble person. And that's the only thing that's going to make somebody who anchors and lives his life in worry. I'm like that. I, live, I worry every day. You know, and it's psychosomatic. I get stress rashes at times and stuff like that. Anxious and yet turns you into a resilient person. The essence of transformed character is to hate all things comparatively, to reorder. Right now, our loves are disordered, to reorder our loves. We need to have a kind of love. and The only way, you need to have a kind of love that's offered to you. You need to be able to receive that kind of love in order to love it back. How do you get it? And this is the third point. How do you get it? you, know, you get it by just praying harder? That goes completely against what we've been saying. Do you do it by just studying the word, by studying the Bible more? Here's how you get it. You need to look at your identity. You need to look at your position, your life positionally, where God has placed you in his standing. You need to look at the sacrifice. In turn, mainly what we're saying is that discipleship is sacrificial. Jesus says, Take up the cross and follow me. He doesn't say, Take up my teachings. He doesn't say, I want you to take up my counsel. He doesn't say, I want you to take up my advice. That's not what he says. Because if you did that, it would crush you. It would embitter you. It would destroy you. Try to pick up Jesus' teachings. It'll crush you. Try to pick up that first and second commandment. Live that out. Even tomorrow, it will crush you. Try to take up any of the other commandments. Do not lie. It will crush you. Who can live like that? It will crush you. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I need you to take up the cross and follow me. Now, that sounds even worse. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. To take up the cross is to put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal, right? Straight up, to put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal. Now, what criminal are we identifying with? Jesus is saying, when I died, you died. That's what he's saying. In the Bible it says, for you died and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. For you died. When I died, you died. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the truth that's going to make, you know, that truth, as a truth by itself, that's going to make you obey Jesus. How's it going to make you love him? How's it going to make you sacrifice for him? It's going to make you obey at times. But is it going to move you? is going to make you love him? How does Jesus become your Rachel? How does Jesus become your Rachel so that your love for him will be comparatively greater, that all other things will be like Leia to you? And, and the way you do that is this. You have to recognize, you have to plant your heart and your soul into realizing that you have become Jesus' Rachel. Jesus... You have to see the sacrifice. Jesus loves the Father above all things. He loves the Father above all things, and the Father loves his people above all things. So Jesus loves us. As a result, in his love for the Father, he has chosen to love us comparatively above all things in his life. In other words, his obedience in the Father was in concert with his love for his people. You could not divorce the two. His love for the Father and his love for his people is married to his love for his people. Unbelievable love. That means that you're his Rachel. You are absolutely delighted in and loved by Jesus. He didn't just die for you to obey God. That would be mechanical. He died because of his love. He was moved with compassion for you. It didn't matter where you came from. In Mark chapter 10, you have this man, uh, he doesn't at least appear arrogant, but he comes to Jesus, tells him basically that he obeyed all of his commandments, and basically says, I want to be a follower of yours. And Jesus, it doesn't say Jesus said, looked at him and kind of scowled at him and judged him. That's not what it says. Knowing his heart, you know what it says? Mark chapter 10, he looked at him and loved him. Tremendous love. In the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our self delusion our self deceit, Jesus looks at us as we are, and His compassion, tremendous love. You're His Rachel. That means Jesus would be willing to work and endure and suffer to protect and to lead, and marry and love us. That's Jesus. He had come to be our substitute, not just a teacher not just an example, not just some religious leader, but to be our sacrifice. That's why Jesus came. So in whose place, when, we say, when he says, I want you to take up the cross and follow me, whose place are, are we taking? What criminal are we taking? And the answer is obviously, obviously we're taking our place. It's our place. When we take up the cross, it's our place that we're taking. God looks at you then. When you look at the cross, when you look at what Jesus has done, you know what you're doing? That's you on the cross, That's Jesus having taken your place. When I died, you died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. What that means is that that's you on the cross. When Jesus was beaten, you were being beaten. When Jesus was being flogged, you were the one being flogged. When Jesus was being spit on and humiliated and ridiculed, you were the one that that got the crown, that got the nails, that got the thorns, that was you. And, and when he died, you died. You paid it all. God looks at you as if you've already paid for every cent of debt, every penalty of sin. That means his suffering is your suffering. Take up the cross, that's what it says. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, it goes deeper than that. Think about it. If you look at it this way, then living a life, a sacrificial life as Jesus did on the cross, you're doing that out of a fullness of God's love for you if you're just serving but not out of a fullness of God's love for you it's going to lead you to disintegration it's going to lead you to emptiness but if you serve out of God's love for you powered by God's love for you it's going to lead to a fullness it's going to bring confidence where there was once insecurity humility where there was once arrogance because you know you're standing you know your position you know who you are and if you just see what Jesus but you know if you just see what Jesus did you're going to marvel at that it's going to be an amazing thing for you that's his work you're going to be moved to obey at times but then then you got to see who he is you got to look at the work of Christ and then you got to look at the person of Christ his beauty who was it that took our place this is the ultimate Rachel that on the cross became the ultimate Leah so that we in our brokenness, we are the layers of the world, could become Rachel's delighted in and loved by the Father. Do you see that? How does that happen? On the cross, Jesus says, I'm forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he means by that is this. He's saying, I am the one and only perfect son of God. But God has turned his face away from me for something comparatively more. What could God love comparatively more to the point where he would hate his own son? And what's the answer? It's you, it's me. That's the gospel. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's several things going on. One thing he's saying, there's emotional content. He's not just saying as a fact mechanically, oh, you've forsaken me. That's not what he's saying. It wasn't something like he was just reciting something there. He was in pain. He was hurt. But the cosmic devastation of becoming sin for the sake of the people that he loves. It's the doublet, my God, my God. Whenever you see that in Semitic language, what you're hearing is emotional content. Anytime you see that in the Bible, the repeat of a phrase addressed to somebody, there's emotional content. Jesus is weeping. Jesus is in tears, and he's saying, my God, my God, my God. It's personal, unconditional. He went to the cross. And sacrificial. You've forsaken me so that you could accept them. And you know what? In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, he did it for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? For the joy set before him. What was the joy that would be comparatively greater than not suffering at all and residing in heaven? That there could actually be a greater joy in heaven that Jesus wanted, that was worth coming down here, comparatively greater, that it was worth coming down here to suffer. It was you, to see you delighting in God, to see you delighting in him. To see you accepted by God. To see you received by God. Loved by God. Embraced by God. Delighted by God. God chose to hate his own son. What would be worth sacrificing his own own child for? It was you. To make you his children. Jesus, loving the father, he's so willing to say, mainly what he's willing to say is, I would be willing to die for them. To lose them would be to be lost. And so I will count myself as lost, forsaken on the cross so that you could be found in him. That's good news. It's not based on your record. It's based on Jesus' record. It's not based on your merit. It's based on the merit of Christ. It's not even based on how well you love, because how well do you love every day? How well do you love God every day? It's based on Christ's love, God's love, just completely faithful, never ending, forever. Jesus says, Hate even your own life in this text. You know, is he saying that we should literally, actively, you know, live a life of self-loathing? Absolutely not. Self-loathing is really another form of self-centeredness because you're looking at yourself more. That's what, he, that's what you're doing. Jesus is talking not about self-centeredness, but self-forgetfulness, releasing, letting yourself go more. He's calling us to crucify our egos. So we, have, we no longer have anything to prove. Why? Because we've already been proven in Christ, the ultimate judge. We've already been proven. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, if I don't get the job, if I don't get the promotion, if I don't get married by a certain age, it's, you know, we have the strength and the confidence to be, to not pass the worldly examination or inspection. You see that? You can surrender. You can surrender those glories because the cross has become your glory. The cross, symbol of execution. It means finality, unconditional. Jesus says that's the essential description of a Christian life. A man walks on with a cross, you know, up this journey. You know, man's walking with a cross, you know. You knew when he's walking with the cross, you knew this person is condemned. That's the last thing. Hanging on that cross is the last thing he's ever going to do. No one actually takes up their cross, starts the journey and says midway through, no, no, this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to turn back around. No one ever does that. There's not a single person who can do that. Jesus is saying when you take up your cross, you are under arrest. Your life no longer belongs to you. No longer belongs to you. You don't belong to yourself. Now that makes some of you worry. But don't you see, not doing that, you will live a life of anxiety. You will never be free. You will always be captivated by the things that you want and pursue in life. Those things will have a chokehold on you for the rest of your life. You will be looking for self worth for the rest of your life. So, Jesus is saying you can, can, you can do without your parents, you can do without your siblings, or your spouse, or your children, or your friends, as long as you have me. Losing them, as long as you have me, you still have you. You see that? Family life, ancient culture. There was an idol. So living a single life was inconceivable in those days. So if you think about it, Jesus is so subversive, not only to traditional culture, but to Western culture, not even the Eastern and the Western, to traditional and and postmodern Western culture. If you think about it, on one hand, it subversive to Eastern culture, traditional culture, because he says, hate your mother and father. Hate your father and mother. Hate your family. Let them go. But on the other hand, it's subversive to Western individualistic society as well because he says, I want you to hate your own life. Let yourself go. You are under arrest. You are in for trouble. Today, this week, we're one step closer to Monday. Let's look to Christ as our justification, as our priority. But as we do that, if you start living your life Like I said, you'll do that. You'll obey for a while. But let's remember to look at at Christ as our love, as our embrace, as our delight, as our portion. And you will find life to make much more sense. It will integrate. You will find your life more whole, more complete, more full of joy. Will you do that this week? Let's pray.